0: My name is Joshua Williams and I'm a general pediatrician at Denver Health Medical Center and an assistant professor of pediatrics at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. In this essay, I offer a vision for vaccine policy that promotes public health while respecting religious beliefs. As I sat in church on a wintry Sunday, soft light filtering through stained glass and coloring my priests' white robes in hues of red, purple, and green, an idea pestered me a church is no sanctuary from measles as a pediatrician i worry about the resurgence of measles in america i speak frequently with parents who have vaccine concerns and i'm frustrated by the rising level of vaccine distrust in our country i've treated infants suffocating from pertussis and children fighting pneumococcal meningitis and i'm not eager to to care for victims of another vaccine-preventable disease. However, I'm also a researcher who studies religion and vaccination, and public health reports that name houses of worship as exposure sites pique my interest. The implicit question that the media, physicians, and policymakers are asking, what do we do about policies that allow exemptions from state school immunization laws because of religious and other personal beliefs, has captivated me. I tuned out my priest and focused on my worry. A church is no sanctuary from measles. I tallied the myriad ways our church service could facilitate a measles outbreak. First, its duration, 90 minutes on average, extending to two hours on holidays, would ensure that droplet-laden coughs from singing lips circulated in the chapel. Next, the proximity of parishioners, scrunched together in orderly oak pews would send wayward sneezes onto unsuspecting shoulders. If proximity proved insufficient, ritualized greetings, passing the peace, blessing the children, and joining hands for the Lord's Prayer would provide plentiful opportunities for measles to latch onto little fingers. If it somehow wasted these opportunities, measles would capitalize on communion. Christians have celebrated this religious sacrament which we believe Jesus instituted, for two millennia. It is our foundational practice. Its name alludes to community with God and our neighbors. Celebratory methods vary, but most Christians eat bread and drink wine or juice while listening to words that memorialize Jesus' death. At my church, we exit our pews by row, form orderly lines in the aisle, and slowly approach the altar. There we kneel awaiting the priest who brings bread, presses it into our palms and reminds us that this is the body of Christ, broken for you. As we chew the dry bread, a chalice bearer approaches and we sip from a cup, hearing, This is the blood of Christ, shed for you. Those who prefer not to drink from a common cup dip their bread in the chalice and eat the moistened morsel whole. Watching communion that Sunday, I was warmed by its significance but horrified by its potential. Through the lens of measles, the priest's holy duties had been transformed into a ministry of mortality. As he tore off chunks of bread and handed them to my friends, their children, and my elders, I could only see an ordained, opportunistic outbreak. Bread to hands, hands to cup, cup to lips, drink, wipe, repeat. After 15 minutes, the priest had touched each congregate once, and dozens had sipped with sanctified lips from the same cup. Surely, measles could not squander communion. My disheartened and distracted mind drifted to a similar communion 12 years before. It was the fall of 2006, and mumps was raging at Wheaton College in Illinois. By the conclusion of the outbreak, nearly a hundred students had been infected at the tail end of a multi-state epidemic that affected over a thousand Midwesterners. I was a junior at Wheaton and several of my friends had sought treatment for swollen glands, fever, and malaise quite distinct from the usual dorm room disquiet. As cases increased and tests confirmed mumps as the etiologic agent, our community became increasingly disrupted. Classmates became cases. Dorm rooms became quarantine zones. Public health notices replaced concert flyers on community messaging boards. School officials forbade us from visiting our exiled friends, so we waved through windows and brought them meals on plastic trays during the increasingly icy fall. The food was cold by the time we set it at their doors. I especially felt the epidemic's impact on our community during that fall's all-school communion. A quarterly praise night at which thousands of students gathered under the towering roof of our campus chapel for singing and sacrament. Normally, Chappie K., our gray-haired, bespectacled chaplain, delivered a sermon and invited us to take communion. Long lines would form as the praise band played, and students would make slow pilgrimages toward awaiting pairs of peers, one holding a loaf of bread and the other clutching a chalice of grape juice. We would hear the words, eat the bread, and drink the juice, joining in community. Yet in the fall of 2006, all school was different. There was the usual singing and scripture, but attendance was down, and occasional coughs drew suspicious stares. I sat alone, many of my friends still in quarantine. Jeppy Kay's message was on point, but came with a coda. The bread holder would be wearing plastic gloves and the chalice would be replaced by plastic shot glasses. Mumps was responsible for these unusual ceremonial changes, he explained. We formed lines and moved forward in a steady shuffle. The plastic gloves were too big for my server and he adjusted them between students. His fingers stuck to the aseptic material with sweat. When it was my turn, I focused on the plastic as the wafer plopped into my palms. The body of Christ broken for you. I picked up a shot glass of purple juice. The blood of Christ shed for you, another server recited. I gulped it back and returned to my chair. 12 years later, in my home church in Colorado, as the last parishioner in line knelt for a blessing, ate the bread and drank the wine, I reflected on the great lengths my alma mater had taken to halt the spread of mumps, a virus less contagious than measles. My thought returned afresh a church is no sanctuary from measles. But, I thought, it could be. What if the innocent hands holding bread belonged to immunized children? What if the sipping lips were shielded from the common cup? What if the pastor preached prevention? from the pulpit, a church is no sanctuary from measles, but it could be. Religious scholars from major faith traditions have studied vaccines and reported religious objections to them. Commonly objectors raise a variety of potential concerns for remote fetal tissue origins of cell cultures where some vaccines are made, whether vaccines violate dietary food laws such as kosher or halal laws or whether vaccines interfere with divine providence by changing the natural order. Yet scholars have reassured adherents that vaccines are compatible with the world's religions and have focused on the responsibilities that believers share to promote the common good through vaccination. Because of the importance of vaccination as a preventive health measure, scholars have even described it as a religious duty. However, recent measles and varicella outbreaks demonstrate that people of faith disagree on this duty, even after being counseled by clergy. And some houses of worship may never be sanctuaries from disease. Thus, as public health departments and elected officials across America respond to escalating cases and costs, they have imposed public space quarantines, school attendance bans, and even the forcible removal of children from their homes. With these actions, the cohesive mortar of our communities begins to crumble. And unlike the Wheaton outbreak 12 years ago, which briefly caused cracks in campus life before ending, the current crisis is a protracted threat. Furthermore, outbreaks have affected many insular faith groups, fostering a distrust of religion. In An Outbreak Spreads Fear of Measles of Ultra-Orthodox Jews of Anti-Semitism, A New York Times reporter observed how some New York residents have begun crossing the street when they see ultra-Orthodox Jews. Many Hasidic leaders fear an increase in anti-Semitism. How should policymakers respond to these concerning stories? What should they do as professional societies such as the American Academy of Pediatrics call on them to eliminate religious vaccine exemptions? When weighing parental autonomy and the public good in their own settings, states have enacted a patchwork of vaccine statutes. Yet surely there are overarching principles that could guide the creation of new policies that protect public health, respect religion, and minimize disruption to our communities. What might they be? Over the past few months and more than a dozen interviews, I've asked religious leaders this question. They too are perplexed and flustered by this crisis. One concept that has emerged as a guiding ideal for better vaccine policy is that of beloved community. Martin Luther King Jr. popularized this term in the 1950s, envisioning beloved communities as societies in which conflicts naturally arose, but love and justice triumphed over fear and hatred through dialogue and nonviolence. In times of crisis, beloved communities would seek justice, avoid retribution, and preserve unity in love. In the case of vaccine policy, one can see how the principles of love and justice could be at odds, but also how they might be engaged harmoniously to create vaccine laws that foster beloved community. Justice alone, through the rapid and forceful elimination of religious vaccine exemption laws, may improve public health but cause an exodus of unimmunized children from public schools and increasing skepticism of government among religious groups. Love without justice, permitting religious vaccine exemptions without scrutiny, ignores the severity of vaccine preventable diseases, their costs to society and their predilection for vulnerable populations. Neither justice nor love is sufficient to foster beloved community and the reckless pursuit of each has its own consequences. Clearly, legislators must pursue a balanced approach in which they promote justice while pursuing love. In his efforts toward racial integration, Dr. King demonstrated this both and approach. He noted how acts of justice, for instance, court orders that enforced desegregation, breed proximity between community members which create the conditions necessary for love. He wrote, desegregation will break down the legal barriers and bring men together physically, but something must touch the hearts and souls of men so that they will come together spiritually because it is natural and right. As policymakers wrestle with religious vaccine exemptions and the desires of their constituents, they have a unique opportunity to use principles of love and justice to extend the concept of beloved community into childhood vaccination policy. First, legislators could foster beloved community by scrutinizing religious vaccine exemption policies. States are not required to provide religious exemptions to school immunization requirements, but out of a sense of love for constituents who object to vaccines on religious grounds, many do. Yet, allowing parents to quickly complete forms at school or online without scrutiny lacks a corresponding degree of justice. Policies that require parents to write personal statements of religious belief explaining their objections, obtain exemption forms in person at public health departments, get signatures from religious leaders or notaries, and resubmit forms every year strike a better balance between love and justice. Multiple studies have found that states with such exemption policies have decreased rates of vaccine exemptions and fewer cases of vaccine-preventable diseases. Second, policymakers could promote beloved community by better enforcing school vaccination requirements. In 2016, public health officials in North Dakota, who were studying declining vaccination rates among school children, compared up-to-date vaccination rates in children whose schools enforced vaccination policies and in those whose schools did not. Unsurprisingly, schools that closely monitored and enforced state laws had significantly higher up-to-date immunization rates compared to schools with lax enforcement. After the Assistant Attorney General of North Dakota suggested that the North Dakota Department of Public Instruction could withhold funds from schools with lax enforcement, up-to-date vaccination rates rose quickly. To proactively assist schools with enforcement, North Dakota officials suggested that local health units create memoranda of understanding with schools to assist with immunization data collection and send letters to noncompliant families. This approach shows love for parents who object to vaccines on religious grounds, even if public health officials or policymakers disagree with the objections, but it upholds justice by enforcing fairly passed legislation. Third, policymakers could pave the way for beloved community by enacting laws that protect public health during outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases. In times of crisis, laws that emphasize justice are essential to preserve the health of the community and protect its youngest and most vulnerable members. Many lawmakers have written or enforced such laws during the current outbreaks of measles and varicella that have spread to over two dozen states. In Kentucky and North Carolina, unvaccinated children have been excluded from school and sporting activities during outbreaks of varicella. Rockland County, New York, the epicenter of a measles outbreak, declared a state of emergency and barred unvaccinated children from public places. Brooklyn, New York, enforced compulsory vaccination of anyone living, working, or residing in four zip codes who had previously not received the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. These actions, which have been upheld in court, are consistent with Dr. King's vision of beloved community, in which justice precedes love as the partial first step toward genuine community. Even though such policies separate communities for a time, they are also loving. Schools are safer for everyone when all in attendance are immunized, and unvaccinated children may be safest in isolation until an epidemic passes. Furthermore, parents who are forced to stay home with their children may reconsider the seriousness of vaccine-preventable diseases and contemplate the mutual responsibility community members have to care for one another. Indeed, several non-vaccinating families from my own practice have approached me in the midst of America's measles crisis with a renewed interest in vaccinating their children and making their communities safer. As Dr. King foresaw, justice creates the conditions necessary for love. To help parents who are reconsidering vaccines and stimulate discussion among those who are not, policymakers could also work with public health officials to create educational modules for parents to complete before their children return to school. This both-and approach recognizes the right of parents to refuse vaccines for their children, but creates conditions under which parents exercise those rights during public health crises. Ultimately, as policymakers wielded the principles of beloved community to create inclusive vaccine policy, they would be able to offer religious exemptions and loving respect for sincerely held beliefs while justly protecting the public from vaccine-preventable diseases. Such policies would decrease the rates of vaccine exemptions and vaccine-preventable diseases, cause non-vaccinating families to reconsider vaccination, and perhaps even create communities in which religious exemptions become non-existent. Unfortunately, some parents may never accept vaccines, regardless of policymakers' efforts. In this eventuality, beloved community would offer policymakers concrete, unifying principles for creating new vaccine policies that could avoid future vaccine-preventable public health crises. As an encouragement, policymakers should remember that they do not labor alone. Dr. King believed that beloved community would be realized when all neighbors became willingly obedient to the unenforceable obligations of caring for one another. In the case of vaccines, I believe that this means religious members of beloved communities would proactively preempt the spread of vaccine preventable diseases instead of reacting when outbreaks occur. In a recent interview, a Catholic pharmacist who serves as a lay health minister for his parish, told me how the parish hosts a yearly influenza vaccine drive and alters communion each winter. As influenza activity rises and the risk of disease transmission through the use of a common cup increases, the priest stops offering the cup at communion and gives parishioners bread alone. His voluntary obedience to the unenforceable obligation of loving his neighbors is a hopeful example that improves upon sterile gloves and shot glasses. Indeed, it offers us hope that all places of their own volition might one day become beloved communities and sanctuaries from vaccine-preventable diseases.